0: When things finally kind of came together, and the final word on this whole thing was that in 451, the Council of Chalcedon, and this is very significant because the Council of Chalcedon finally kind of got the act together and finished things up in 451 A.D., and they said, Nestorius is wrong, Eutyches is wrong. See, Eutyches is emphasizing the, the God stuff so much. The divine, that's there, no doubt about it. The human kind of gets lost. So Nestorius's Jesus, sort of doesn't look as human, I mean as divine quite as we might think he should be and Eutyches Jesus isn't human like he should be. The humanity gets lost. Here the divinity gets lost. So Chalcedon said these are both wrong and so what Chalcedon came up with were these four famous negations. The negations of Chalcedon. The things that we say that Jesus is not And so in the personal union, or the hypostatic union, when the God and the man come together in Jesus, they come together unconfusedly. And they come together unconfusedly and unchangeably. And they come together, there's two more, obviously, indivisibly, and inseparably. Which starts to sound like the same sort of thing. But these are the four negations of Chalcedon. The first two, to say that Jesus is truly God and truly man, unconfusedly and unchangeably, is a straight shot at Eutychianism. Because Eutyches said you take the God you take the man, throw it in a blunder, and give it a good mix up, and then you got it. That's Jesus. And Chalcedon said, No, it's not a confusion. You still have true God, and you still have true man, and you can still see the humanity, and you still see the divinity. It's not some kind of a new hybrid. So Jesus is not some sort of unman or un God. He's truly God, he's truly man. So Eutyches is out, unconfusedly and unchangeably. And then the next two indivisibly inseparably are shots straight at Nestorianism because Nestorius would talk about being able to sort of divide out the indivisible parts you got the human part you got the divine part you got the Jesus thing and then you got the God thing and church, the council said no get divided once the union happens there's no way to slice them apart they're just inter they're bound together The humanity and the divinity are so closely associated with Jesus, you can't pull them apart. That's the way it is. So Nestorianism is also thrown out. So Chalcedon confesses two natures, one person, the personal union, the hypostatic union, unconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. That's the confession of Chalcedon. And the church comes out getting it all sorted out in spite of the heresy. Questions for clarification? All right. Okay. I don't think I quite understand the difference between being indivisible and inseparable. It seems like the same thing. Indivisible means that you can never, um, it's not like you can divide the two parts, like two boards, and inseparable is you can't pull them apart any time later either. Oh, oh, I see. Okay? So it's more of the long, the, the, the permanence of it, kind of what's going after, going after here. Which leads us to several other things. And one of the first things that comes out of this, then, is when did the personal union or the hypostatic union end? If it began at the conception on March 25th, 5 B.C., in Nazareth at about one o'clock in the afternoon, by the, judging the light on the painting, you know, of the Annunciation. <laughs> so, if it happened on March 25th, that's when it started. When did it conclude? When did it end? No, exactly, has not ended. Has not ended. And this is the the real um, the scandal of this thing. So, God and man together forever. Well, think about that a minute. This means that God has taken up into his very nature human flesh. And this is quite an honor for humanity. And that's why in the Middle Ages they would talk about blessed fall. that brought about the incarnation. And now human flesh pulled up into the Godhead itself. Wow. pretty cool. All right? So it did an end. This also means that on the cross... What's going on? Real suffering. You've got God in the flesh dying. And we actually sing it in some of our Lenten hymns. Oh, darkest woe. And we sing about <coughs> God is dead. And people say, wait a minute, I thought that was bad to say that. But no, that's the miracle. That's what's going on. God is in the flesh, dying. Which one of the heresies, because I've heard this talked about before, say that uh, the God part kind of left Jesus sure. a little bit on the cross. Yeah. And then came back. This fits really well with adoption. Okay. Works real well. Because if Jesus was adopted by God, that means that when Jesus is on the cross, at just the right moment, he just bails out. And in fact, they even say, when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's happening is the human Jesus is saying, hey, wait, where'd you go? Because he's just been abandoned. And they, that's what they see going on. So adoptionism, it fits pretty well. And docetism, the same kind of a thing. Docetism, the cross, who's being crucified, it just looks like Jesus, but it's not really him. So is God suffering? No, no problem. And see, this is the real rub. This is the real problem with the incarnation a suffering God can't have it can't have it. God's impassable. he doesn't suffer. he doesn't experience things. and so got to find some way to get around that. So docetism gets around it. Adoptionism gets around it. subordinationism gets around it, and they all I think they're dodging the problem. Apollinarianism is still trying to kind of figure out how you can have this kind of thing working together, and these things get a little more nuanced and closer to the truth as you go along, but they're still missing the mark. The point is you have two real human natures. In one person, joined so intimately, you can't pull them apart, and you can't distinguish them, and yet they're still fully human and fully God—a real human being, not a pretend one, and real God, not a lesser God—the real thing. Okay? All right. Yeah. Go ahead. How do they uh, deal with the crucifixion in light of the Trinity? And you know. Christ being both God and man, and God and God dying on the cross. How do you deal with that? I don't I, know how I deal with. I don't pretty, very I'm well. pretty much blown away by the whole thing. Yeah, well, you know, I'm trying to figure it out just because enough to blow me away. So. Yeah, <laughs> it is, and that's what you have to be content with, and just say, "Wow." Well, I, I just remember having a conversation once, and I said, "You know," I said, "When you really think about this, God died on the cross," and, and, the, and of course, the group I was with is like, "No hey, way, God's not dead. God didn't die." Right. And you know, I said, well, it wasn't just Christ, because Christ and God are inseparable. That's right. You're yeah, absolutely right. Kind of get wrapped around the axle on that. Well, you're, you're right on the right track, though, and you're right to say it. God, God died on the cross. We confess that. According to the, according to the incarnation, Christ died. God died. That's right. Oh, I have one other heresy to add to this list. I kind of don't want to leave him out or them out, and that's the monophysites. or it looks like monophysites, okay? That's how you spell it, monophysites. And you can see in here mono means one. Fusis is the Greek word for nature. And so monophysites said there's only one nature in Jesus, one nature. So instead of having, and the monophysites are a sort of a blend or a close cousin of Eutychianism. Eutychianism says you've got the blender god, throw God in, throw man in, zip it all up, and you have a new third thing. It's neither God nor man, quite like we're used to it, but a new third thing. And we say no to that. Monophysites say what you have is you only have one nature. God's nature takes over. But the problem here, again, is this. And one of the, some of the people who helped this sort this thing out were known as the Cappadocian Fathers, a guy named Gregory of Nyssa and Basil the Great. And let's see, there was another Gregory, Gregory of Nazianzus. And Basil and Gregory of Nyssa were brothers and Gregory of Nazianzus did a lot of this work. These three great thinkers worked on this a lot. And one of them said this phrase, what is not assumed is not healed. And what that became a very important phrase because what that means is they realized that if some part of humanity was not joined to Christ in his incarnation, how can we assume that that was also redeemed or saved? And see, that's the problem with Apollinaris. So Apollinaris says, okay, it's a human body, but no human soul. Well, great. So the human body is redeemed. What about the human soul? It was left out. And so the problem with the Monophysites is they're saying only one nature. There's just a the divine nature. The human nature's gone. Well, so now I don't have a human nature being redeemed. Then there was another blend down the road a little bit. The one last gasp, trying to sort this out, were called the Monothelites. And the monothelites said there's only one will in God, in Jesus. And again, that was said, no, that's also a heresy, because there's a human will and a divine will, both are in Jesus. And if he doesn't have a human will, then the human will was not redeemed. Because what is not assumed, what does not become part of the person of Jesus, isn't redeemed, doesn't become part of the redemption. So he is fully human, so that the full human can be redeemed. Monophilites, monoph- Monophilites, Monophysites, and Eutychianism, all wrong because you're losing real humanity. You, the story is wrong because you're losing the full divinity. That's the problem. Yep? This isn't probably all that important, but <clears throat> how you talk about the hypostatic union is, still exists. So then you could say God does have gender. Yeah, you, know, you, you can. can according to the according to the second person yeah male and that's one of the things that we have to also remember about this one of the things about the incarnation is the whole particularity of it because jesus becomes or god becomes human in this place at this time in this person he's joined to jesus not to mary not to peter and he's not joined to some sort of Human ideal or some human wisdom. It's this man, this place, this time, very particular, grounded. So now if he's in a different, well, not that he's in a different realm, but not that he's, uh, we don't see him physically as human right now. Mm -hmm. Then um, what uh, I kind of, what I'm hearing, and I'm probably taking it wrong, is well, he's not in this particular physical place where I can see. So is he not man or not human anymore?
1: But, but he went back
0: to what is the pre incarnate. Uh-huh. You start to sound like a Calvinist now. <laughs> <laughs> no, you see, he's he's truly God and truly man for all eternity. And so he's really a human. And when Christ makes himself known He appears as a glorified human body. Okay? So you think about, um, well, think about the post-resurrection experiences. He became a human. He comes as a human being. He's recognizable, and he's he's seen as a human being. And even in the Apocalypse, when um, Jesus comes alongside John, and he's recognized as a human being, human form, because human flesh has been taken in to die. But... Uh. I I studied some in the Book of Concord with Pastor, and he talked about this big controversy over the ascension, where some people believe that Christ ascended as a fully formed human being, and other people don't. It relates to all of this, right? Mm-hmm. Christological question. That's right. Yeah. No doubt about that. Um. So Jesus is. God in the flesh, a particular human being at a particular time and in a particular place. And this is one of the things that they, they complain about in Jesus Christ Superstar. Judas, you know, I mean this was at the Muni this past summer. I don't know if you mean, you guys weren't around probably yet, huh? So anyway, <laughs> some of you were, some of you know Jesus Christ Superstar anyway. Um, but this is what Judas is complaining about. Why did you choose such a strange time, such a strange place? If you come today, it would have been different. But see, God chooses this time, this place. It's the scandal of that particular, this is the way he does it. That's how he works it out. Now, the other thing that we need to keep in mind here also is that um, <clears throat> what was I going to get at? One you were saying, it, and I had in mind, and I've lost it now. It'll come to me. All right. So we have the full personal union taking place, and it happens in this time and in this place. A particular individual, and sorting this out was not easy. You can see how long it took. We got 325 to 451. We got a couple hundred years of the church kind of wrestling through this thing and kind of coming to terms with this and getting it figured out and getting it right. So it wasn't, wasn't a simple thing. It took a while to kind of pin it all down and nail it all down and get it right. Not an easy thing. All right. Good, good, good. Oh, that bugs me. I had that thought. Now I lost it. Any other questions? It will come back to me sometime. Probably after the fact. All right. I have a question. Yeah. Real quick. So pre-incarnate. Mm-hmm. Post-incarnate we think of Christ as in human flesh. Mm-hmm. Is there a ritual? we can think of him in pre-incarnate? Because, well, if Jesus was before existence. Sure. God, then he was. In, then he was. He was spirit. The spirit, of God. Yeah, he was spirit. No human form. There was. Right. He might take on human form, just like the visitors to Abraham at the trees of Mamre you know where they show up they take on human form for that point but God's Spirit doesn't have human form but see the thing is now with Jesus I remembered it Okay, with Jesus he is human form now he is flesh and he has it forever so that is and it really does help us to kind of visualize it that's one of the things with the Trinity as well father we can get that that's the grandfather thing we know what that looks like Jesus we got a handle on that we can handle that spirit What's the spirit look like? Dove, I guess. I know. <laughs> you know, we just have, have a hard time with that. But the reality is, before the incarnation, though, there was no flesh and there was no particular you form. He here, sure, he might appear for for purposes, and God the Father can even do that. And the Spirit comes as a dove. Okay, so mm-hmm. is he a dove? No, but for our sake, he does this kind of thing. All right. Now we frequently talk about the incarnation and we will associate the incarnation with the action of Christ in his humiliation and we'll talk about sometimes the humiliation of Jesus and the exaltation of Jesus it's very important to realize that the humiliation of Jesus does not equal the incarnation the humiliation of Jesus does not equal the incarnation because if it did, what we would be saying is that the very fact that he became a human was the humiliation. There's nothing particularly humiliating about being a human. See that to think that the hum- the incarnation itself was the humiliation is to buy into the idea that the flesh is somehow evil or opposed to God. It's not. Flesh is just flesh. It's fine. Nothing wrong with it. The problem is not the becoming flesh. The humiliation is being subject to sin and subject to the consequences of sin. That's the humiliation. So that Jesus, becoming a human being, that's not a problem. The the state of humiliation begins when he is now subject to the law, subject to sin, and bearing the consequences of sin. So, Jesus feels hungry. Yeah, consequences of sin. Jesus feels sorrow at the tomb of Lazarus. That's yes, part of the pain you experience. He gets tired, falls asleep in the back of the boat. He gets worn out, being with all the crowd, and so he has to go across the lake to be a white waif by himself for a while. He goes up into the hills to pray frequently. Why? He's got to take care of things. He's a human. He's subject to the frailties of a broken, a broken world, and he is subject to the brokenness of this life. So that's the humiliation. The incarnation itself is not the humiliation. If we were going to teach that the incarnation is the humiliation, then that would mean that the resurrection, when Christ goes back to the Father in glory, he can't take a body with him because that's part of the humiliation. But it's not. The body is also glorified now and is exalted. And the body is fine. Nothing wrong or evil about the body. Humiliation is all about being subject to sin and the wages of sin. Okay. With me on that? So, in Lent, this all comes out in Lent. This is when we always all we think about all these things and the humiliation stuff. So the don't ever get the idea that Jesus became a man. Can you imagine that becoming a man? How terrible. Well, that's not the bad part. Being human is not the, the nasty part. The nasty part is being subject to sin and being coming the sin bearer. That's the nasty part. That's that's the humiliation that he bears the wages of sin, and that's what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians, that um, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So he becomes the sin bearer in our place. That's the humiliation. That's the the thing that's really the agony that he carries. Okay? (coughs) All right. So we go forward here, and we talk a little bit more about this. The... Hypostatic union. Then we have. Oh, I've been waiting for this. Three ways of further describing the hypostatic union and what's going on. The personal union. Got a question you go. Yeah, go ahead. This accepting of true God and true man is hugely important to us. Yeah. Especially when it comes to communion. Yes. So, people that say it's not true about Christ, then where do they stand? Exactly. This, <laughs> is, this stuff has big implications for our understanding of the, Holy, of the Lord's Supper, the, of Holy Communion. <laughs> and um, people who get their Christology wrong end up getting their Lord's Supper stuff wrong. And a lot of these debates were raging fiercely during the Reformation, precisely over the issue of the Lord's Supper and what's going on. And we're going to get to that in just a minute. When I go through the three genera, all right, yes. Exaltation is what? The exaltation is, is the conquering of sin okay. and the human body being pulled up into the full glory of the divine. Just making sure. Now, the other thing we re- need to realize is that Jesus is fully, completely, hundred percent God the whole entire time of the incarnation. Does the Godhead always show? No. That's the other part of the humiliation is the non-use of the divine authority and the divine powers. Choosing not to use them. That's also part of that humiliation. So, he's got the divine authority, he's got the divine glory and power, doesn't use it. Holds back. So, non-use